0: I want to thank you all for bearing with me. My voice is a little better than it was last week, but it's still not fully here, so we'll do our best see how we do. Uh, This Christmas, my mom's children and grandchildren got together to uh, purchase her a new shower as a gift. My brother and I have spent most of this week working at uh, installing it. Probably shouldn't take us most of this week, but, you know, man, have we been learning some lessons along the way here. Now, in case you didn't know, farmhouses that are uh, a century and a half old didn't have to deal with any uh, building codes. They didn't have to comply with those things, and so, man, there's not a there's not a floor that's level. There's not a wall that is plumb in the whole place. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been in in those houses. Unfortunately, uh, our uh, the house we live in is about, uh, about a century old, and our farmhouse is about a century and a half old, and the, <laughs> everything I seem to run into has nothing straight anywhere, which makes projects kind of a challenge. So it uh, turns out that having things square, plumb, and level is kind of important when you're installing a shower. So we've had some struggles with some of those things. What's more, the reason that the old shower needed to be replaced is because the floor underneath it was deciding to run away. It had sunk a couple of inches, and that uh, that kind of created some uh, some gaps and some leaks and some cracks in the old shower. Without that solid foundation, we had some problems. The old joists had had uh, shifted off of their supports and fallen. You need that solid foundation. Without that, it didn't matter what mom tried to do to deal with it. It didn't matter how she tried to hide it. It wasn't going to be stable. It wasn't going to be secure. And It certainly wasn't going to be functional. We needed to be able to get that solid foundation first, which required tearing out the old things and establishing something new and solid. Today, we're beginning a new series, uh, and uh, it's unusual for us here to have a topical series, but occasionally we do that, and we're not going to be looking at showers or old building foundations, but we are going to be talking about parenting foundations. However, before we get into the specifics about God's plan for parenting, we need to prepare the site before we build, and we're going to do that through the lens of Psalm 127. Before we look at Psalm 127, uh, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, as we, as we open your word together today, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word, that you would open your word to our hearts, and that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Lord, help us not just to, to hear your word, but to apply it in our lives, to take hold of it, to make it ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Now, some of you may be thinking, I'm not a parent, so what does this have to do with me? Or, I've already raised my kids, so this is kind of a little bit late, right? Why why am I wasting time on this? Well, before you tune out today, I want to encourage you uh, to tune in. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So... Don't check out just yet. God has something to say to each of us, whether we're parents or not. The principles we'll be discussing shape the world, not just kids. We're going to be talking about the things that shape the world and shape our lives. So we're going to want to understand what God says about them. I want to say right off the bat here, somehow i got fuzz on my sweater. I don't know what's going on. It's driving me crazy. All of a sudden. I want to encourage you, very often when we have a, a, a topic like this, some of you, I don't know who you are, but you do, will feel overburdened. And the devil will try to attack our minds and say, you've already blown it. It's too late. You can't get it back. Well, I will grant you that we don't have a time machine to get it back, but I want to encourage you to ride with me for a while as we go through this series We'll be unpacking some of the things that can address that that pain of regret, wishing we had done things differently that we can't undo. Today we're going to be looking at some broader concepts. So uh, if you haven't already, I invite you to open to Psalm 127. Psalms are in the middle of the book. 127 comes right after 126. Just here to be a blessing. Try to help. It's a short psalm, just five verses. Let's let's read it together. This is a song of ascents. It's attributed here to Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. as we examine this text, the core reality that we want to be able to draw from this, simply this. Our best plans and efforts only matter if God's behind them. Our best plans and efforts only matter if God is behind them. There are a lot of things that we can do that seem good, but as we just read, unless the Lord builds the house, it's a fruitless, empty labor. In order for us to rightly understand any passage of the Bible, we need to understand what that passage was intended uh, to say to its original audience, in its original context, according to its genre or type of writing. The book of Psalms is essentially poetry, songs that word psalm comes from the Greek trans- translation uh, later on of the Hebrew, and it basically means songs. Many of these, but not all of them, are prayers. Many of the psalms were written by David, and most of us, when we think of the psalms, like Psalm 23 that most of us learned as kids, or you've heard in group settings enough that, that you're familiar with it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we, we think of King David, when we think of the Psalms. But there are at least eight different authors. He wrote a lot of them. He he wrote more than anybody else. But there are at least eight different authors spanning a period of nearly a millennium. Now, the book of Psalms as we know it was compiled in what we call the post-exilic period. I'm thinking, what is that? And who cares? The post-exilic period is that period after God had allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and his people to be carried off to Babylon as judgment against his own people. When when God returned them, that's the post-exilic, the after-exile period. Prior to that, he had allowed Jerusalem and his temple to be destroyed and his people to be carried away out of the promised land. We remember very commonly them going to the promised land. People like to tell the stories about uh, coming out of Egypt, being delivered from bondage and Moses and parting the Red Sea and all these things. Very seldom do we spend time contemplating or talking about the fact that God then took them back out of the promised land. When he did that, he had a purpose. He took them into Babylon And then he redeemed them and brought them back to rebuild the temple and the city. That is the post-exilic period. The priests and Levites who compiled the Psalms did so with a specific structure and purpose. Essentially, they were mapping out in song their relationship to God through the exile. Now, to accomplish its purpose the book of Psalms is divided into five books within the book. So it's kind of like acts in a play or movements in a symphony. The first book, which comprises Psalms 1 through 41, shows that first book shows the pattern of Israel's rise and fall, essentially prefigured in the person of Israel's great king, David. Most of them are from David. This is a compilation of David's Psalms. In fact, it says this is the end of the Psalms of David, even though there are Psalms of David throughout the rest of the book. But that first book of the book of Psalms sets the stage and sort of shows what's going to happen in the rest of the the books, the other four books of Psalms, through what happens in David's life as we see him follow God, sin against God, return to God. We see the same pattern in Israel. The second book, Psalms 42 to 72, reminds us of Israel's pattern of wandering from her faithful God. The third book, which is the darkest of the books, it's Psalms 73 through 89, depicts the feelings of abandonment and despair during the exile. This is the lowest point for God's people. And in this middle book, the question at the heart of it is, how can we sing songs to God in a foreign land? He has abandoned us. We don't have a temple. We have no manifestation of God. we're, We're separated from Him. How can we sing the songs of Zion in Babylon? They're darkened in their intellect, they're despairing in their emotions, they're overwhelmed by being cast aside. Then hope appears on the horizon as book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, covers the call of the prophets to return to God and the promise that he will lead them back once again and bless them. The Psalms culminate in the predominantly joyful fifth book, which is where we find ourselves today. In the fifth book, Psalms 107 to 150, as the exiles return to a rebuilt Jerusalem with celebrations of God's faithfulness and reminders that He is the center of everything, and that only by clinging to God's Word can His people be established and blessed. So as we get to this last book of the Psalms, the people are celebrating. They're rejoicing. They've come through this darkness. They've wandered from God. They've had God warn them, correct them. They keep blowing it. He blesses them. They are so thankful that they forget all about Him, and they go on their way. Sounds a lot like my life then while they're in exile, everything is dark and hopeless. There is no God. There is no peace. And if you want a picture of how bad it was, take a look at what Jeremiah writes in his book, and specifically in the book of Lamentations. It is so overwhelmingly horrific when the people of God are separated from God. It's beyond even describing Then they get the picture of hope. Jeremiah 29 is a great picture of that. Where Jeremiah says to them, look, you're going into exile. You're going to go for 70 years, but understand that I, the Lord, have already set this at 70 years. You will suffer, but you will return to me because I know the plans I have for you. And my plans, even in your suffering, even though you feel abandoned right now, my plans for you are good. They're for your welfare, not for your calamity, to, to prosper you, not to hurt you. We often misquote that or, or take it out of context. We love to do that with verses that sound inspirational. We put them on, on uh, coffee mugs and plaques and say, oh, I know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. Except for the plans that he has for them is to send them into horrible exile for 70 years. We don't put that part on the plaque. The point is, he is working out a greater glory through the suffering. His plans are different than their plans. So book 4 has this hope, but they don't have the hope present. It's not manifest yet. God isn't doing it yet, but they can see it out there on the horizon. Book 5, now they have returned. They have rebuilt the city wall. They've rebuilt the temple. They've reestablished this connection with God or more specifically, God has reestablished this connection with them even while they weren't seeking Him. In Psalm 127, we find this background. right? So so we're in this fifth book. We have the psalmist writing here these words. Let's read it again with this background for us, with a little deeper understanding of what it means. And maybe we can understand why it's here and what God intends for us to get from it. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house... The builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. As we take a look at this text, the picture that we have here isn't primarily about parenting. It is. It's there for sure. We see the children aspect of it. But the emphasis of the psalm, and as you look at it, you can see it's divided into into two sections, basically. The admonition, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, all your efforts are in vain. It's got to be God's plans, or it's worthless. Your most worthwhile plans are worthless without God. If God's not in it, you can put no hope in it, no stock in it. But... When the Lord builds the house, many blessings follow. The people have returned. They've received now the blessing of God in being redeemed, brought back to the land. And as they're there, in this fifth book, we have a reminder. Look, Israel. Look, Judah. You did it by your own strength already, and look where you ended up, in Babylon resorting to cannibalism, the people of God resorting to cannibalism because it had gone that badly, there was that much famine, there was that much absolute, and and bear in mind, it was those who remained in Jerusalem that were resorting to cannibalism. Those who survived the onslaught and weren't carried off but were left behind suffered worse than those who were carried off into the pagan world of Babylon. Horrible stuff. Don't go back there, Israel. We're home now. But if we don't have God in the center of it, it's worthless. If we have the temple, but we are not doing this by His hand and only by ours, it's worthless. We can build up this city wall, but if God's not in it, we had a wall before. It didn't do us any good. It's a big picture psalm. Shifting back to our construction metaphor. Have you ever noticed that a house can look really good from the outside, yet have serious problems on the inside that no one sees? Some of you have houses like that, right? Where every time you're dealing with something, you're cursing the builder. It's like, what the heck? Man, you can't take shortcuts like that. You can't have exposed wires in my wall. That's not good. I'm sorry if it hits too close to home for some of you. It makes a difference whether you have a quality builder. A good builder knows that while layout, decor, and curb appeal matter, they matter far less than having a sound infrastructure. Things like the foundation, the roof, the electrical system, the plumbing, the septic. Get those things wrong, it's not going to matter how pretty the house is. If you've ever had your septic back up, you know it doesn't matter how pretty the house is. If it burns down, crumbles, and collapses... All your pretty pictures of how it looked before mean nothing. Psalm 127 reminds God's people that this reality applies to life, not merely physical construction. They were once a wealthy and powerful nation, but they relied on their own wisdom and strength rather than trusting God. They patterned their lives after the world around them rather than clinging to and obeying God's word. And it all proved to be empty. Vanity. No one understood this better than Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes out of this discovery. He had done the whole wine, women, and song thing. He was wealthy beyond imagination. We all know the legend, and maybe you've seen stories, you know, made up things like National Treasure and Solomon's Treasure, all these, these incredible stories. Well, these are rooted in the reality that Solomon was incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wise, he led Israel through an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity. It was a powerful time. Solomon understood, though, that it all turned out empty. Here in this psalm that's attributed to him, we are reminded that our best plans and efforts only matter if God's behind them. Let's take a look briefly at what he writes here. First off, as we see very, at the very beginning, God must be in what we build. God must be in what we build. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's builder's labor in vain. If we're talking about a nation, a family, a life of an individual, your foundation matters, your builder matters, your blueprints matter. You cannot use the blueprints of the world and claim to have a life that God built. It's not how it works. So, if we're going to do things our way and trust our own understanding and our own strength, our own best intentions, the psalmist is very clear we will fail. You can absolutely get to the top of the ladder of success, but you're going to find that it's leaning against the wrong building. You can raise your children to have the best education and the highest self-esteem. They can be pretty and have the greatest uh, senior portraits from from Harrington Photography. It's not going to matter if they go to hell. Nothing matters when it's our plan instead of God's plan. We need to build a life that God is building. Notice this, the wise person chooses to trust in God's plans. The wise person chooses to trust in God's plans. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, you should be familiar with it if you've been here for any length of time, because I talk about it a lot. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, Submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. When I'm choosing my understanding over God's plans, God, I I see what you're doing here, uh, but I think i got a better option. It just doesn't even sound right when we say it, right? But we do it regularly. When the Lord tells us what to do, and what He says to do is uncomfortable, or awkward, or requires sacrifice, or makes me feel bad, then I don't do it. And I justify it through the thinking of the world and the darkness of my own flesh-centered intellect. But sin darkens our wisdom. We need to learn to trust God's plan. Notice, as you're taking your notes here, the wise person chooses to trust in God's plans. This isn't some, some... automatic special gift that some people have and and you know oh jimmy he he really struggles but sally's got a lot of faith it's just she just has that faith born into her god just gave her that faith no i gotta choose to say i don't feel it right now but i know that god's plans are better than my plans you can't say amen you ought to say ouch The reality that God's plans are always perfect needs to get settled in our minds. We need to choose to recognize that God's plans far outstrip our best intentions, our most profound wisdom, all the books we read, all the podcasts we listen to. It's empty if it is based on anything aside from God's plans. How do we know God's plans? It's not by some subjective feeling. It's not because you had a dream or heard a voice. He tells us. He wrote it down for you in black and white and red in some of your Bibles. Read the Word. But don't just read the Word. Cling to the Word. And don't just cling to it emotionally as if it's going to do something for you. I clutch my Bible and I hold it close to me because it has some spiritual significance. And it does nothing. Holding your Bible close to your heart doesn't get it into your heart. Faith is obedience. How do I choose to trust God's plans? I read and pray and then obey Some of y'all are already saying the B-I-B-L-E. If you grew up in Sunday school, that was already on your mind. I choose to trust by acting on it, by obeying the Word. Notice, secondly, God must be in what we treasure. God must be in what we treasure. Second verse, or the second half of the first verse, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Israel has been longing now for 70 years to get back to the city. The city of David, the city of God, Mount Zion. This is where they can worship in the temple. The temple is where God manifests His presence. It's the representation of God among His people. When the temple was torn down, it was symbolic of the fact that God had rejected His people. They couldn't wait to get back. Nothing mattered. They were so, so absolutely taken with the vision of being home. And yet, they couldn't get home. Because God wasn't allowing it yet. Now when they get home, all they want to do is protect it. I want to keep what belongs to me. I want to keep what matters most to me. The the city of God is so important, we have to protect it. They build the wall. The walls around the cities were to protect them from enemies without. And yet the psalmist reminds us that unless the Lord's watching over the city, your wall might as well be paper mache. It's not doing anything. Your best warriors can't guard it if God says it's going to be unprotected. The things that we value in life, we tend to want to protect. Some of you have your, your, you know, cyber protection, your life lock, all these kinds of different things, because it's my money and I'm going to keep it in my pocket, in my bank account. I'm going to make sure that I lock my doors at night because the valuable things are inside. When you, Go and you park your car at the mall, you lock the doors, right? Some of you make sure I'm not going to leave my purse or my valuables out on the seat where people can see it. I'm going to protect what, what is valuable, what I treasure. But if God's not in it, what does it matter? Even if you could protect it, it still isn't protected. Because you have something and you don't have God. God must be in what we treasure. We need to value what He values. Notice this, the wise person chooses to trust in God's protection. The wise person chooses to trust in God's protection. Very much anxiety comes from an unknown future. There are lots of scary things out there, right? Say amen if you know there are scary things out there. Viruses, cancer, economic downturns, unemployment, you show up for work, your boss says, you know what, we, we don't need you anymore. Relationships gone wrong, we don't know what's going to happen when we send our children out of our house, we send them to, to the school or, or with their step-parent or, or, with, or with their uh, other parent. And a, as we face all these things, it can really burden our hearts. It can overwhelm us because we don't know what's going to happen. Things are scary. Let me just tell you faith is not about not being scared. It's about not being controlled by it. It's about trusting God's protection more than anything else, more than my ability to take care of it. I can tell you, as a dad, I'm still learning this, but I can't protect my kids. I can't protect my grandkids. I can't keep them safe in a world that is broken and cursed and anti-god and surrounding them constantly with ungodly thoughts poisoning their minds. Every time they go out in a car, they might not come back. Every when you go home from church today, you might not make it home. Boy, that's a real downer, Pastor. (laughs) But if we don't get that, then we are out of touch with reality. And if we're out of touch with reality, then all we're doing when we try to slake our fears is we're escaping and running away. Man, if that's the case, you might as well do what everybody else is doing and get drunk, get high, hide yourself, and just not deal with it. None of those things change anything and they're ultimately, I'm going to say this as gently as I can, deeply stupid. And if you have lived that life, you already know they're deeply stupid, so don't pretend to be offended because you know it's true, because you've been there. But it doesn't have to be substances. I run away in relationships. I hide myself in work. I throw myself into trying to be the best provider. All of these things, whether it's it's pornography or absorbing myself in novels so I don't have to think about reality, when we are trying to deal with these things apart from trusting God's protection, we end up with escapism. And it doesn't take us anywhere good. Unless the Lord's watching over what you treasure, what you value... All your efforts to try and protect it are worthless. And even if you do, it comes up empty. Third, notice this. God must be in our efforts. God must be in our efforts. Verse 3. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. The children of Israel have worked from the sweat of their brow to try to provide for themselves. They are remembering what it was like in the exile. If you could picture our Great Depression and multiply that exponentially, that's what you're talking about. People who were wealthy, who were in the ruling class, now they got nothing. They're homeless in the streets. It is a very dark picture, and no amount of work, no amount of effort was going to pull them out of that. There was no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You couldn't afford bootstraps, it wasn't there. And all of our hope and our own efforts, our own strength to provide, is like that. We justify. Not doing the things that God commands, not gathering with God's people because, well, I gotta, I gotta provide. I gotta work. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. Man, how much good is that gonna do when you dishonor God? All of our efforts to try to support ourselves, to provide for ourselves, to get our kids the best education, the best jobs, to, to further ourselves so we can. Have more, all ends up empty if God's not the one behind it, driving it. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Listen, the psalmist is not calling us to sloth, to laziness. In fact, if you want a picture of what he's saying here, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It never says, don't work It says putting your hope in the work is fruitless. Having a a good work ethic is something that we do to honor God. But if I'm working for any other reason than honoring God, it is empty and fruitless. I'm not a better person if I have a work ethic that makes me look like a better person, but I'm working for self or for family out of my own strength rather than relying on God. God must be in our efforts. Notice this, the wise person chooses to trust in God's provision. The wise person chooses to trust in God's provision. Solomon is letting Israel know. Now, bear bear in mind, when he wrote this, it was long before the exile ever happened. It's compiled in this place to remind them but he is even as he's writing it at a time of prosperity he is letting them know none of it matters what matters is walking with the lord clinging to him do your work be be diligent be the very best you can be and honor god with your excellence but don't be a slave to it don't ever put your work ahead of god's priorities He'll take care of you. He grants sleep to those he loves. In other words, he lets those he loves know, you're in my hand. Daddy's got you. Whatever you do, I'm not going to let you go because I'm your heavenly father and my provision for you is perfect. Well, but I don't have... No, 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 no. My provision for you is perfect. But then why does she have this and I... No, my provision for you is perfect. God will make sure that you have what you need to be exactly where he wants you to be so that you can be focused on him. And for some, that means affluence and prosperity, which is in itself a great trial and can quickly become an idol. And for others, it means poverty. Not just average, we're getting along. It means poverty. And yet God does not let you out of his hand. His provision for you is perfect to bring about in you exactly what needs to happen for your heart and your mind to be surrendered to him. And when your heart and your mind are surrendered to him, you will not be lazy. Cannot. There's no such thing as a lazy follower of Christ. There might be a lazy admirer of Christ, a lazy claimer of Christ, but if you're lazy, you ain't following. You're just sitting there watching. You will work, but you will not be enslaved. Your work will not become an idol. Your your own ability to provide will not be an idol for you because you will choose to trust as a wise person in God's provision. Now, as we uh, look at, this is only the first half of the psalm. We won't spend as much time in the second, because we'll cover most of that later in other areas. So you'll have to come back for that. But the words of the psalmist remind me of what Jesus taught in the Gospels. That there's a solid foundation where a wise man builds his house. And there's an easy, popular foundation where the foolish man builds Only one of those is built to last. Take a moment here and turn to the book of Matthew. If you're in the Psalms, and we're going to be back here in just a moment, but turn to the right. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So you've got maybe a fifth of the Bible coming after it. When you get to the book of Matthew, find chapter 7. Just a couple of verses, but I do want us to see them together. Matthew 7, look at verses 24 to 27. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose. And the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Turn a little farther to the right, to the book of Luke. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. Let's read that as well. If you're in Matthew, you'll jump over the book of Mark. If you get to John, you went too far. Luke chapter 6. We're going to pick up with verse 46. In a parallel to what we saw in Matthew Here, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. In both of these passages, Jesus teaches that the obedience to his word is the solid foundation. We often will say he's teaching that God's word is the foundation and, and that's a little true. It's partly true but it's not entirely true and, and the Luke passage makes it abundantly clear because he starts by saying why, why are you calling me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? I'm not your Lord. I'm just a guy that, that you're following around. Maybe you're buying the book. You know, You're getting the merchandise but you're not applying what I'm telling you and what I'm telling you that this is the command of God and you don't obey it? You're not building on a solid foundation. In both of these, he's teaching that the obedience to his word is the solid foundation. As James would later write in his letter, hearing or knowing isn't enough. For God to be involved in our plans and efforts, we must subject ourselves to his word. In other words, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. The man who builds on sand heard the words. He just didn't apply them. He didn't act on them. God specifically revealed himself to Israel, giving them, out of all the nations, giving them the scriptures. Israel had God's word. They knew God's word, yet they disobeyed. And the house they tried to build without God crumbled. Back to Psalm 127. Let's take a look at this second part. In the second half, and we'll develop this more later, but we see here the result of building our lives and homes according to God's word. Notice these things. I'm going I'm to go through all four of these real quick and then I'll come back and g- connect them to the text. When God builds our home... Legacies are lasting, burdens are blessings, weapons are wielded, and honor is defended. Legacies are lasting, burdens are blessings, weapons are wielded, and honor is defended. Notice that as the psalmist is telling us this, this is the result... When we do part A, we get part B. That's the result of it. All of this in the context of how you build, not a family, how you build a nation, a society. They've been in exile. They've been brought back. They're the people of God. But if we're going to get this right, it starts by building our home right. If we're going to build a community, it starts in the home. If we're going to build a society, it starts in the home. If we're going to build a nation, it starts where? Really? Where does it start? Just making sure y'all are awake out there. Okay. I know my voice is a little, you know, a little rough here, but I don't want you to fall asleep. Yet. So if we're going to do this, we're going to reap this harvest, then there are seeds we have to plant. That will be the rest of our series. We'll be looking at how do we do this? How do we take God's blueprint and we put these things together in such a way that we are building a life, a family, we are raising children when that is is appropriate to us. We're going to specifically look at parenting. How do we influence as non-parents in such a way that we are building together what God has designed? Because if he doesn't build it, it's not worth building. That's what we have to work on. As we look at the the passage here, notice what he says. Uh, Children are a heritage from the Lord. That idea of a heritage is a lasting legacy. This was the problem. They had been brought out of Egypt. They had been given a land. They had been promised uh, in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 that God would make a great nation out of them. From Abraham's seed, all nations would be blessed. That he would have children beyond the the number of the stars or the sand on the seashore. And now that legacy appears to be in jeopardy. That heritage seems to be removed as God's people have been removed from the land. They've been rejected. And the psalmist here is saying, when we're building God's house, God's way, according to God's blueprint, and God is behind our work, when God is watching over the things that we value because we value what God values, then check it out. You're going to have children that carry forth this legacy and it's lasting. It goes beyond this moment. It's bigger than you. That was the beauty, the picture that, that we see in, in the traditional view, the Hebrew view, the the global view and all the various tribes of the world historically until the last five minutes of history we saw this legacy i'm going to pass these things on to my children and they will outlive me that's the cry of the heart to be remembered in future generations even the pagans want that how can i build a monument so that my name will not be forgotten historically we saw that through our children And Solomon is saying, this is bigger than you. It's bigger than your generation. Follow God. Build His thing. And that legacy is going to last. It's going to extend beyond. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from Him. Offspring are a reward from Him. This is Particularly important in this moment in our cultural history. We need to understand that while children, let's be honest, and you all got children, some of you are children, children are a burden. They cost money, they make a lot of noise and a lot of mess. They're work. If you're a parent, do you know that children are a lot of work? Say amen if you do. But when we're doing it God's way, when God is in it, then we can recognize them for what they truly are. Beyond the burden, the burden becomes a blessing. And Some of you who once had, parent, had children in your home and no longer do, especially if you've lost a child. But even if your child has just grown up and moved on, or if you're in an estranged relationship and your child, children aren't, Aren't spending time with you and not demonstrating the love that you hold in your heart for them, wouldn't you just long for that burden to be back? Wouldn't you just long for that? I wish I could, believe it or not, change one more diaper. And you might chuckle about that if you haven't experienced that loss. Children are a reward. When God builds our home, burdens are blessings. And we no longer see children as something that is in our way, that keeps us from achieving our goals, that slows us down from our pursuit of career or entertainment or relationships. It is a blessing from God, a gift, a reward. He goes on in verse 4, like arrows in the hands of a warrior children born in one's youth. You might have been wondering why we would say weapons are wielded. That's the description that Solomon gives. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. We'll develop this later on, but this idea of a weapon, there's a purpose. A warrior without a weapon is an empty thing. A warrior that doesn't have the tool of the trade to be able to do what it needs to do. It's lost. Children have a purpose beyond just the feel-good purpose, the, the joyful experience of seeing that cute little baby, so precious. And you forget about that a little bit while they're teenagers sometimes. God has an intention. Arrows are meant to be shot, to let fly with purpose and power and direction. And when God builds our house, those weapons are wielded on His behalf to do what He has set them forth to do. Lastly, notice this in verse 5. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame When they contend with their opponents in court or when they debate with their enemies in the marketplace. It's another rendering. Their honor is defended. When God builds our home, our children in our older days come back. When they've learned the ways of God and they walk in the ways of God, we will not be abandoned in our time of need and distress And the honor is defended. As we walk through this series, we will unfold some of that. For today, I want you to remember this core reality that we're dealing with. We're going to be going through this series with today's core reality and Psalm 127 as our backdrop. This guiding principle is what prepares our worksite for the construction God intends to do in us. Whether you're a parent or not, remember that our best plans and efforts only matter if God is behind them. Our best plans and efforts only matter if God is behind them. What has your home, your life been built on? What are you building it on now? What are you building your life on? What's the foundation of your home? Understand, it's not too late but it is later than most of us tend to realize. If you've been building on a faulty foundation, it's time to rip it out, to build on the truth of the gospel. Our way leads to destruction, but with God there is forgiveness and life. Give up trying to be the boss. Give up trying to run your own show. And trust Jesus to take away your sins, make you right with God, and give you a brand new real life that never ends. And if you are already His, then let's start building according to His blueprint, using His materials, doing it His way. Because unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have given us clear and powerful instructions in your word. Far too often we have hidden behind the excuse that, well, I'm I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm I'm no expert, I'm no pastor. But you didn't call us to that. You didn't call us to be scholars, you called us to be students being a student is a choice so Father I pray in this moment as we have opened your word and as we close out our service and song that you would make us students of your word that you would give us a, a strength and a, an awareness in our hearts and a conviction in the depths of who we are that we need to cling to to hunger for, and to live out your word. Help us to make that commitment to you, to ourselves, knowing that it's only by your power that we're able to do this. Help us to let you build our house as we build our life on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.